back to Hot Off The Pod. Today we are doing part two of our Unmasking Isla Vista collaboration with KCSB and the Daily Nexus news team. And we're so excited to be speaking with Athmika Iyer, a second year student and also the county news editor for the Daily Nexus. Say hi. Hi. <laughs> also, we're welcoming back Ashley Rush, a fourth year and the internal news director at KCSB. Say hello. Thank you so much for having me back. Super excited to be here. So let's turn up the heat. Today we are talking about testing and vaccinations, which is arguably one of the most important and vital aspects of student and university life through the pandemic. We're running out of hot puns to use on this podcast. I fear that's not good. (laughs) (laughs) That one was okay. So Ivy is a really unique case study with COVID, you know, due to the high density living situation, which means that COVID can spread really easily throughout the community. It's a college town, which means that, you know, obviously students are inclined to hang out with one another. And also students go back home more frequently and home is not here. I guess a question for you guys. I don't know if you were here throughout the pandemic, but if you were or even kind of following from home, what was kind of the atmosphere that you sensed in IV? Like how seriously were people taking it? What was kind of the COVID response here? Yeah, so I was a, wow, this is crazy. I was a sophomore. Now I'm a senior. I was a sophomore at UCSB living in San Rafael Residence Hall when the COVID pandemic hit. And we were really fortunate to get our like housing refunded for that that quarter, which a lot of people weren't because they were you know stuck in leases. I know we spoke about this last week's episode, but so I was home for most of that summer, and I came back in August when I would say, yeah, again like a year ago today. That was a very strange time to be an IV because you did have a lot of people walking around with masks, a lot of people very serious, and like a lot of a lot of emptiness in IV, I would say, but then you did also start hearing about the party culture and all of these things. So I wasn't there like through the thick of when the pandemic hit, but I would say a big thing that I noticed was like emptiness. Yeah. So I guess I'm sort of on the opposite end of you because I'm a second year now, which means I was a first year last year. And I wanted to live uh, in campus housing my fall quarter, but even though they extended contracts, they ended up ultimately taking it back. So I ended up being in Isla Vista when we were uh, dealing with the winter surge. So really the height of cases in Ivy was (laughs) when I moved here. I feel like the atmosphere in Isla Vista people tended to take to two extremes. Hmm. There was very much the, I'm going to, you know, wear my mask. I'm not going to interact with too many people. I'm going to be safe in how I interact with people, keep it to a small circle. There was that population. There was also the population of people who said, fuck everything. (laughs) And I don't care how many people are going to be safe and try to keep our community safe. I'm going to go out and have a good time. Hmm. And, you know, Isla Vista actually did pretty well in terms of their case rates up until that winter surge, but it got insane during that time. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because those two extremes you talked about seem to exist in every single household. And unfortunately, when you're living with other people, you know, for COVID, you have to make collective decisions about whether you're going to be safe or not. And I think it definitely caused a lot of tension in, in the community. 
I think what's kind of crazy about Isla Vista, or I guess college towns in general, is that you have like seven, eight, nine people in houses here who are living three to a room, two to a room in very close proximity. And so COVID just made things go crazy because it was like if one person in one house gets COVID, that's like seven, eight other people who are potentially exposed to it. And I don't think that's really something that other places in the country had to worry about, but it was definitely something here. No, totally. And that's something even Dr. Do Reynoso said in our interview with her, which was that that was her primary concern. Isla Vista, it can be the perfect storm because of the high density living situation. Unmasking Isla Vista actually talked with public health officer Dr. Ansorg and director of public health Dr. Do Reynoso of Santa Barbara County Public Health. And here are some of their more positive and optimistic observations of the behaviors of UCSB students in Isla Vista throughout the pandemic. The fact that we were able to um, pretty much mitigate the spread of of COVID-19 through testing, through vaccination, through tamping down on gatherings, I think it could have been a lot worse. But because of the strong partnership with UCSB and the strong partnership in the community, I was really so, so grateful. For the, for the most part, the student population living in Ivy really caught on the message about mask wearing, about social distancing, about not gathering, not having huge parties. I don't know if you recall, there for every major party, we the county was really, you know, we were really nervous. I don't know if you recall Dr. Ansorg and, and myself speaking at press conferences and saying, you know, um, Halloween is coming up. We really strongly encourage you. This is not the Halloween to throw major parties, really um, celebrate within your own household. And then um, we kept that message strong and we were incredibly, incredibly grateful that that the IV community heard our concern and were uh, great partners uh, with us. She's being nice to us. <laughs> And that's optimistic. We talked about those two extremes, but as people who were living in Isla Vista, that's a, it's an understatement. It's a very, it's an understatement of what it was like here. I don't know if you guys agree. Yeah, I think it was just like cracking up. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love. (laughs) No, I think it's funny because local leadership, they don't want to necessarily scold college students for their behavior. Obviously that tactic is not going to work. But I think sometimes we're getting some compliments maybe we don't deserve because that wasn't much of a compliment. (laughs) To her point, she's right. Cases did explode during the winter surge, but I think before and after Ivy's been fairly decent. Like I said, when the variables are there for the perfect storm and we didn't necessarily have a very that long or that big of a huge storm discounting the winter surge, to her point, at least we didn't add to their fears and worries even though we probably did but you know like it's just it's funny because I feel like to some extent people aren't necessarily being held accountable right like there were a lot of people that just did not make they just didn't make good decisions and they behaved out of selfish interest instead of the interest of the community and ultimately that meant schools couldn't open and businesses couldn't open and so i think it's important to sort of say that too right like yes we had people that were 
being safe, but for those, and there were many who engaged in irresponsible behavior, they need to be held to account for helping add to the numbers that kept five-year-olds and six-year-olds from going back to school, that kept business owners from being able to do the thing that gives them money to bring food to their families, you know, like, yeah. it's funny to sit back in here and like laugh <laughs> at some of the undeserved compliments or even slight compliments because like, because <laughs> she's not, she's trying to be, she's really trying to be nice and to her credit, we appreciate it. But at the same time, it's sort of like, well, we might deserve a little bit of the scolding too. Yeah. I want to kind of pull back the curtain on some of that party culture because I think that we already have a kind of big rep as a party school at UCSB. And I think that people just didn't want to let go of that even during the pandemic. And people need to be held accountable. And I think that's hard because you fall in this trap in IV where it's like UCSB officials don't really have authority over Isla Vista. And so a lot of the time it falls to other students or student orgs or county officials to kind of govern Isla Vista. And it's this kind of messy governance that... I mean, even Isla Vista residents kind of don't know what the rules are, don't know what's going on, don't know who to listen to or turn to. And I feel like that peaked in COVID. Yeah, this is funny. I actually interviewed Max Abrams from the Daily Nexus on this very topic, and he said something that really resonated with me. It's very applicable to Ivy. It's kind of like that meme with the three Spider-Mans like pointing at each other. <laughs> like that's how it feel, how it felt with IV just jurisdiction. It was like, no, it's the county's responsibility to monitor the cases. No, it's the university response. No, it's the community. It's it should be the students themselves. And like I think it was a mix of all of those things. And eventually when the sheriff's department did start working with the the university more like things got I'm doing air quotes right now but better but it was difficult to kind of figure out who to blame in this situation and then honestly like that felt to me like it was a bit of a waste of time even to blame people it was like okay but what do we do about it you know and I think there's also this difficulty because it's like people need to be held accountable for their actions it's definitely true but just talking to some people like reporting on the party culture there's this lack of visibility, I think, of what their actions did, right? So it's like, I didn't get COVID, my friend didn't get COVID, so I was totally innocent in it, and I would have done it again if you gave me that opportunity to do that, because no one in my immediate circle got COVID. But obviously, as we all know, it could have extended to community members around, and there was an older person in Isla Vista that died during the pandemic, And who knows where that person got COVID, like if that was someone that went to a party. So I think this lack of visible consequences was a really big aspect of it. Mm. I'd also add that, you know, I feel like the university really loved their cop out of we're not in charge of IV. So you can't, why are you coming after us? When the truth is your students' behavior, both in and outside of the university on and off campus is a reflection of what you value as an institution. So if you're not going to show students real consequences for engaging in very unsafe behavior, not even for themselves, but for the community at large, that speaks to your values as an organization as well. Mm -hmm. And in general, I would say that the university wasn't really great about holding students accountable throughout this entire thing. Not at all. 
just in comparison, I know several East Coast universities had very strict consequences for breaking COVID protocols, like suspensions, expulsions, and that that stuff just didn't happen here. And I'm not sure what excuse the university wants to lean on for that, but it was just a very different response, I think. Also, if we're talking about organizations at blame here, mm, I love to be one to uh, bring up the good hate Greek life conversation but I feel like we would be amiss to not talk about that element of this whole thing because I think that it was a common thread that a lot of these parties were taking place maybe not in the frat houses and sorority houses themselves but certainly by members of that community in it's not only the university and the county and all those great Places, but also the organizations that work directly with students, like the Greek Life organizations, which I, to my knowledge, did not have strict policies at all. Just to add to that, so we actually, the news team, I wrote this article, uh, I want to say either May or June of this past year, where we PRA'd the university for all Greek Life violations of COVID protocols. And if I remember correctly, ATO was the biggest offender. And looking through that list, like, we weren't surprised, obviously, but it was disappointing and disheartening. And what was even more disheartening was when we reached out to their official national chapters. And 90% of the time, we would get an excuse like, well, you know, we still need to care for our chapter members' mental health. And they still need to care for their mental well-being. When the truth is, the actions of your chapter members are endangering the physical welfare of not just the people within your chapter, but the people around them. So there was a lack of accountability from the university. There was a lack of accountability within those organizations themselves. And not just in this like, you know, frat house filled with 18 to 22 year olds or or whatever age range, but within the higher ups of those organizations themselves, it was top down, just very poorly run. Yeah. Uh, One thing I remember throughout that period of COVID was the Ivy Party's Instagram page that kind of arose out of this lack of accountability in Isla Vista. I feel like people just felt like there was nothing that could be done to stop these parties from happening when they were physically endangering people in our one mile square radius of like insane amounts of students that are living here. It really turned to other students to kind of self check each other, which was an interesting dynamic. I don't know if you guys remember that page popping up. Yeah, so at UCSB Party had over 4,000 followers during the pandemic, or they, they still do. You could still check it out. I believe it's still active, but I remember this like exploding and becoming this whole thing about what are these social justice warriors doing? Like, is this cancel culture? And if you really look at it, you know, it's like the person running it wasn't really advocating for anything. They were just kind of putting this out there. To be fair, there was kind of like some edits with some like news context beneath it. And it was like very dramatic because it was dramatic. But I don't know, I I did speak to someone who was featured on the UCSB party page four times, very proudly. He was very proud of the fact that he was. And I thought that this was a really interesting kind of counterculture almost of the account because it was almost like, look at me, I'm on here with my name fully broadcast on, you know, this page and I'm still fine. The university hasn't 
punished me. I am totally fine. I'm going to be okay from all of this. So it was almost like this backwards reminder that even through, you know, partying and doing all the, all this stuff, like this person was, I don't know, invincible. And, you know, maybe there were some consequences down the road, but I, I do think that the UCSB party page was like this weird reminder of that. Ashley, I don't want to ask you to disclose your source. But was it a he? Was it a white man? It was a he. I will not disclose my source directly on this podcast, but it's out. The story is published that he did use his name. So feel free. (laughs) Exactly. So that's what I'm saying is that like when, you know, he told me like, yeah, I'll use my name. Like that even surprised me more because it's like, yeah, again, this is me being so proud of the fact that I was able to do this with no consequences. Yeah. I do think it is interesting though to note who can kind of afford to get away with these kinds of things. And for the most part, it is white, rich students who are living in IV, who can afford to pay the price, whether that's literally in terms of fines, which were handed out at some point in the pandemic. But if you're if you have 20 people over and you charge a five dollar get in fee, that's covered. It's so easy to get around that. And so those were the people who were getting away with it. And actually, that was something we spoke to. So I did a feature, uh, I want to say around March, about all the local entities that respond to these violations, one of them being Isla Vista Foot Patrol. And that was an issue that we talked about, which is that, you know, it's, these citations exist, but are they really a consequence when if everyone pitches in five bucks, you're chilling? Mm-hmm. And that's if the citation is even issued, because I, you know, spoke to someone else who was like, we were on the beach having a great big party and IVFP came up and we just, they just told us to disband and we chatted for a while about our weekend plans. Like it, the citation thing, it wasn't like citations were just being issued left and right. It's very true. That wasn't a big deal. I think it's like a really good point that people that can afford to pay these big citations especially if it's in a 10 person house and they split it 10 ways they're gonna get off and they're gonna be fine you know Mm, totally let's move to talking a little bit about testing and student health and I think that one of the biggest struggles during the pandemic was the fact that UCSB does not have many or any medical students medical staff and student health is really the only place on our campus that could even maybe become a testing and vaccination site and you know kudos to them because they did adapt and build out this whole program but from my knowledge none of that existed pre-pandemic you know what worked what didn't I mean you guys know better than us from a personal standpoint I was really impressed by the student health response in terms of testing specifically I have always had an amazing experience getting tested it's just Mm, been so so easy to walk through I got tested this morning and (laughs) everyone is just like hi welcome and I always thought that that was really well done it did feel like the testing was a little bit delayed like we had needed it before it came and I understand there's a lot that goes into it and once it was there it was really helpful I remember the IV theater community testing site was also a really good resource because that was you know really important there were a lot of people in IV and locally Goleta Santa Barbara that weren't UCSB students that were potentially contributing to the spread of COVID in IV and I'm not sure how well utilized that resource was but I'm really glad that we had it. Just to add on to that a little bit so being that I was on university housing they it was a requirement you got tested every week and it was very well done in the time that I was there. I never had a bad experience. They, You even had options on some days, up the nose or in the mouth. <laughs> you know? 
I lived in Isla Vista all of last year because I got roped into a lease and I figured I would stay and live it out and I was working so it was fine but I will say it felt like we were raw dogging COVID for a good quarter there. It it felt like it was it, it was very confusing. It felt very scary for a little bit. We didn't have access to testing. It was very much like cuz Ivy is very Small, it's separate from everything else. If you don't have a car, you're kind of screwed over. You can't like get to Cottage, which is the big hospital. And so it was a little scary for a while there. But I remember when the student health testing started up, it was it was like immediately a weight off of my whole house's chest because it was so accessible. It was so it was free. It was easy. You would bike down to campus and get tested. Yeah. And I even started getting in the habit of going like preventatively once a week just to go make sure I was safe. It's so easy and convenient. And I think that it was so important that it was free and easy and convenient because that's the recipe for getting students to do things. (laughs) Totally. And I will say that the Ivy Theater testing point was, in my opinion, very well planned, maybe a little late to the game, but very well planned because Viviana Marsano, she works for the university, but she worked alongside Jonathan Abood, who's the general manager of IVCSD, to sort of set up an incentive program. So if you went to Ivy Theater to get tested, you might get a yerba mate, you might get a raffle ticket for a bigger prize. And so it was, I think, really those small things that maybe the person who got tested doesn't necessarily think about, but like that creates a positive experience of getting tested and, you know, being a safe member of the community that I think really went a long way. Yeah, and I think the fact that it was so easy to just gave people more incentive to do it because it's like, why not? We're going to continue and talk a little bit about vaccines, but obviously vaccines are required for for most students coming back in the fall. And I wonder what role do you guys see testing playing in the future now that, you know, vaccines are required? Are they still going to use that with unvaccinated students or is it going to be still free and available for students who are, you know, vaccinated? Because it's still a real possibility to get Delta with when you are vaccinated. So any insights into that? Yeah, so I think they sent out an email saying that students will still be allowed to get tested whenever they want to. This is sort of a question I've been personally grappling with because I think that we're at a point in this pandemic where there isn't necessarily a recipe or a a set of things to happen that make you think, oh, maybe I should get tested because everyone is in such a unique scenario. For example, I'm fully vaccinated. I don't necessarily go to like big full-on parties. I maybe like a kickback or something, but unless I was like exposed to someone who was positive or I was at a really, really big gathering, I don't think I'd really go and get tested that much Mm -hmm. versus maybe someone who's only partially vaccinated, is immunocompromised or lives with someone who is immunocompromised. I think those various factors completely change with what frequency you should get tested, how you should approach testing in this upcoming uh, quarter and definitely the rest of the year. Because it's just one of those situations where your own personal circumstances will dictate how you should go about dealing with, you know, safety and your own health and the people around you's health more than any, like, specific set of steps would I guess Mm. and I think for me it's really scary that you could be doing everything right and be fully vaccinated and still have to go get tested and be concerned about getting COVID I think that it's 
safe to say that at the beginning of the summer, most of us who were fully vaccinated were not really that concerned about COVID. There was a moment there where we were going out without masks and we were able to see people. And then I actually had a few of my housemates test positive for COVID and it really changed my mindset really fast it was like immediately back into that like let's go get tested like where's the closest site and so it's like easy to think that you know we might not need to rely on these testing services anymore now that the vaccines are here but obviously delta is really changing things and we don't have enough data yet to know but you know we might still need to be diligent about going to to testing and and thank god those services exist here i did want to talk a little bit about what it was like getting vaccinated because I think it kind of followed the same trajectory as testing did in that it was very confusing for a good couple weeks and then it got super accessible and easy -er for people (laughs) um, to go get vaccinated. I know for me, I was working in an elementary school and so I needed to get vaccinated. And so in order to get vaccinated the fastest, I went home to LA because it was way more accessible than Isla Vista was to begin with. And so I guess what was kind of your guys' experience? Was it easy for you guys to get vaccinated and for your friends in Isla Vista to get vaccinated? Where were some of the hurdles there for you guys? So I was actually in a really unique position on two fronts. One, being that we are university employees, when education workers were allowed to get vaccinated, so were we, which was kind of nice. So I got vaccinated in March. And the other unique thing that worked in my favor was I was the Nexus representative at public health press conferences. So in terms of fully understanding the steps to get vaccinated, the best way to do it, I literally had Dr. Doe Reynoso on Zoom in front of me telling me, well, here are steps one through five on how you do this. It was perfect. Which is what we all needed, but somehow we didn't have. (laughs) So I think what we're saying here is we need Dr. Doe Reynoso to take over television. Yeah, suddenly I'm on board. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Great. Then that's been our episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it was it was nice because I think like very early off the bat, I knew, okay, so you go to myturn.gov and you find the closest locations and you make your appointment and you go back for your second one. And so I actually got vaccinated here at a cottage in their drive through. Oh, so nice. It was so nice. It was so nice. It was so (laughs) amazing. I literally I had the awesome opportunity to, to interview people who worked at cottage and I was like, by the way, just drop in this little feedback. That perfection. <laughs> like, you're right in that the those first few weeks were definitely very hard in terms of figuring all of that out. But I think once we all had that process down, mm-hmm. the people arranging the vaccination sites and the different methods by which people can go get vaccinated, totally. they did a fantastic job. Yeah, I just want to echo like kudos to Cottage for that drive-through clinic. I also got vaccinated in March under the education sector as a university employee. And there was like a group of like three of us in my car, my roommates, and it was like the best day ever. It was like such a great day, you know, after a year of just like shit. And I just remember everyone being so like joyous and happy and it felt like we were like celebrities, you know, they were, <laughs> like we were down the red carpet and they were just treat- they were like thank you for getting a vaccine. And I was like, thank you for giving it to me. <laughs> like, oh my God. It and, was joyous. Yeah, and like after that, you know, it, it felt like everyone around, you know, was getting vaccinated slowly. Yeah. As more people could get vaccinated, it just felt like what Melanie was saying, there was this period of time where it was like, we're, we did it. We beat COVID, we're safe, and we got it to the other side. And it was 
pure bliss for a while and then you know again with delta trickling back up it was like oh but a few cases here and there and this happened and this happened and I, or a few weeks ago like the closest exposure i have had was like a friend of a friend and it was like okay this is real mm-hmm. this is back and i think it yeah. almost takes that personal like knowing someone who got it even though they're vaccinated to really be like uh no like you can't just let your guard down now yeah no i feel like there was this huge upsurge in vaccinations which is great and i remember i would bike down my street and i would see all the chalkings on the windows of people who had gotten vaccinated and i'd be like oh look at us ivy's getting vaccinated like we're doing it look at us but i think in reality we still have a long way to go just to add to that a long long way to go a long way to go because uh as of july isla vista Mm -hmm. which is part of the 93117 zip code had so that zip code itself had the sixth lowest vaccination rate in the entire county, which yeah. is terrifying. Dr. Dorinoso actually has something to say about this. And as usual, she says it better than any of us could. So we want to hear from her. So for the, this age group, 38% remains unvaccinated. So there's definitely, as Dr. Ansorg mentioned, uh, lots of room to, to work, uh, to improve. But... But I'm hopeful that with the, uh, with at least the UC, um, the UC's mandate, uh, that, that students be fully vaccinated, uh, uh, when they return to campus, that during the summer, um, students will be, uh, would have started their vaccination journey, um, so that when they come back in the fall, that they will be vaccinated. So really looking forward to seeing that 38% unvaccinated, uh, number, uh, dropping drastically, um, in a couple of months. I'm obsessed with her. But I did want to give a bit of a stat update since that interview. So in Santa Barbara County, 73.9% of the population is eligible to be vaccinated. And out of that 73.9%, 64.9% currently are fully vaccinated. And that's ages 12 and up. So in total, 55% of the total population in Santa Barbara County is vaccinated. We could get those numbers up. <laughs> but... August has had more vaccinations than July had, which is probably due to back to school, due to Delta kind of rising. People want to get vaccinated. Due to Pfizer getting fully approved by the FDA, which I think was a big roadblock for a lot of people or or maybe an excuse for a lot of people. Totally. Yeah. And so we're on a good track, I think. But I think it's important to remember where we are and where we still need to grow in terms of vaccinations. So Get vaccinated if you haven't yet, guys. I feel like we plug this every episode, but... We're going to keep plugging it. There, no shame. We're going to keep plugging it. Go get vaccinated. All the hot off the pod hotties are vaxxed. <laughs> oh, God. So something Dr. Dorinoso said in that clip is this hope for next year with everybody vaccinated and coming back to school. And so I think... What are some of our worries moving back to in-person in terms of kind of testing and vaccinated and COVID? Let me tell you, there are plenty, plenty. So first of all, there is this housing crisis going on. Oh, we yeah, we have a whole episode. <laughs> Good, I'm excited to hear it. But the consequence, so this is sort of funny to me, but the university is saying that because students are not opting for 
the usual high density living situations, there is a housing shortage and that over enrollment because it's our fault it's our fault it's our fault yeah yeah, yeah. it's our fault it's not a possible over enrollment no 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 no. no. it's not it's our bad no it's our fault but when you think about it having high density living could contribute to a really disastrous upcoming school year absolutely so even the solutions, because they have a wait list of over 900 people and they've offered a couple housing by making doubles into triples, finding general spaces that they can use for housing. This, the problem with that is the higher density of the situation, the more people there are affected by even one person's positive result. So this housing crisis is a warning. It really is a warning for a potentially very disastrous outbreak whether that is in a house with 20 people or a house with you know a double with three to each room a dorm that's worse dorms and other areas where you have shared facilities like bathrooms and everything that's terrifying because now what we're saying is yeah like we're we're packing people in like sardines and if one person gets the very new, very infectious Delta variant, who knows how many other people are going to get it. I will say, like, I lived in FT my freshman year. Fuck FT. We had sweet shared bathrooms, so you would share a bathroom with five people, but those dorms are tiny, you're packed together. If one person on our floor got sick, I got sick. Like, immediately. Gross. It's crusty in those dorms. I cannot imagine living in that environment through COVID next year. That's... It's scary, and I am scared for people who are living through that because it has such a potential to turn into a super spreader event that I'm like, are we sure that we're going to do this next year? Like, we're okay. Like, I guess I'll watch as things combust, but. Right, and not only watch, but be part of it because, you know, we're all going to be going to classes in person together, presumably with all these students packed into dorms. And so it's not just a risk for people who are choosing to live on campus. It's for the whole community, for the people in the grocery stores, for everyone. Yeah, and I think as kind of some of the semester system schools are starting to go back, it'll be interesting to see we're kind of lucky in that we have another month or so before we have to dive back in. Since we're recording this. Yep, since I this will obviously be out later, but it's going to be interesting to see how some of the semester system schools are kind of handling it and if things start to go awry. Yeah, moral of the story, you guys are probably going to be talking to SB Public Health for a, a oh, while yeah. longer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, we're not excited, but we're here. We'll do it. We're ready. We're ready. <laughs> There's this difficulty too, I think, because we've been pushing this whole year for going back in person and we've been longing for this in-person experience of college and missing, you know, we talked about like the chattiness in the classes and just engaging with your TAs and everything. And I want that so bad. And I think so many people want that so bad, but not like this, if that makes sense. Mm. I want to be back in class and I want to be safe in class, but I think the option of online classes for a lot of people is like a really good resource that could help. And it's scary that that isn't really being considered, I think, as much as it should be. I know there's a big push right now to have an online option for all classes, and I don't know how feasible that is, but I do think like pushing so much for the in-person option when it maybe isn't the best route and it it also isn't just the full experience in general you know what I mean Mm. it could kind of backfire yeah 
it's not gonna be normal we're gonna gonna be masked it's uncomfortable it is i'm i mean it's literally i think so clearly draws the line between your in my in group that i see unmasked and this other person you're not yeah and i feel like that creates such a social pressure and i think all these emotions and all this disappointment you're, you're talking about is so valid and i also feel it contributes to people making not the wisest decisions yeah and maybe like they're aware of it you know i think that there's definitely some moments where i've made a decision during this pandemic where i was like that wasn't the most logically sound decision and you know because i was feeling this way and that about what was going on and i really needed to do something that maybe wasn't the safest yeah so i think it's just going to be about using your logic as much as possible when you can to make these decisions and letting those emotions feeling them and and understanding how disappointing this school year is going to be but also putting them in the background and having to prioritize people's health because at the end of the day that's most important exactly the it's a balance it's always finding the balance between because i think to some extent the way at least personally i'm looking at it is it's something it's something. And if we want to keep our something, then let's be as safe as we can possibly be. Because otherwise, it's going to be back to square one with nothing. And I'm sure we don't want to go back to that either. Yeah, it's. I think as much as it's about us making good decisions and holding each other accountable, it's also about making sure we have the resources to stay safe, making sure we still have testing resources, making sure getting vaccinated is accessible and easy for people and required to be on campus. And just hopefully that student health keeps doing a badass job because so far they've really been saving our asses. So I think with that, thank you guys so much for coming on our podcast. This has been great. Thank you so much for having us. It was awesome. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, we'll see you guys in a minute with our part two. Get vaccinated, please. Moving through the series Unmasking Isla Vista, we've talked a bit about the global pandemic obviously, and the impact on local communities and individuals and local and smaller businesses have suffered from lack of tourism and consumers restricted financial flexibility. We're talking with my partner in crime, Catherine Swartz, who is EIC of the Daily Nexus. And also Alex Goldberg, who is a second year political correspondent and news reporter at KCSB. Emily, what is an EIC? Editor-in-chief. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) That's a great question. I don't know what an EIC is either. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Catherine and Alex, for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. To kick it off, I thought we would, you know, the focus is Ivy businesses and just business in general, but I think Ivy is unique in its kind of business landscape, and so I kind of wanted to talk about it. What kind of stands out to you guys about businesses in Ivy or the space in Ivy? Well, I think from the time you just first walk around Ivy, you can see it's really different from a lot of other even small towns, just because our student population, UCSB and SBCC, makes up such a large percentage of Ivy. So you've got a lot of takeout places, a lot of liquor stores, and not a lot of other things. You know, that's Ivy's a really unique landscape when it comes to local businesses because of the students here. A pending dispensary. (laughs) Totally. And I also think it's kind of a transient space because a lot of students move in and out of it. You know, 
I think a pretty often occurrence we kind of see is businesses shutting down, new business reopening, only to kind of last a year or two and move out again. And there are the staples, you know, some have lasted and we love them and we know them, but there's a lot of businesses that kind of move in and out of Isla Vista. Yeah, totally. And I think that also part of what what contributes to the influx and, and of these businesses is that leases in IP are so hard to come by and there's so few commercial spots it's very expensive to have a lease in IIP and also the student population leaves in the summer and leaves during breaks and so there's a lot of gaps in in busyness during those times so it can be really hard to have a business here that flourishes year-round yeah absolutely I think a lot of the trends that have been decades long in IV businesses we're seeing those same trends now except at a much larger pace. So when you think about businesses going in and out, well, a lot more businesses went out of business this year in IV compared to an average year. When you think about some students here for summer and most are gone, well, a lot more people were gone this past summer due to the pandemic. Totally. Yeah, and I think it's important to note we see chains like Blaze Pizza shutting down because of the pandemic versus, you know, small family-owned businesses such as Freebirds thriving. So I think it's interesting to see the dynamic between chains and the small family businesses and where students are choosing. Can we pause to cry about South Coast closing? (laughs) Oh my God. If anybody doesn't know, Melanie and I would always get South Coast Deli, like without fail when we would come into the office, and it was heartbreaking when it closed down. The, I've just the IV location, there's one in Galita, but it's not the same. Never Anyways, yeah, I think that there were a huge amount of changes, like as a consumer, that I noticed the most, you know, during the height of COVID. Things changed down. I moved out of Isla Vista, which was a huge trend. A ton of people left and went home. And then the people who were left here were kind of left here in like a food desert with nothing. You know, like all of these businesses closed down and a lot of people lost jobs too because there were closures. A ton of a ton of those businesses employ a ton of UCSB students. And so it, with this push into the virtual space, those businesses were kind of the first to go, I would say. Yeah, it's not even about, in some cases there were businesses fully closing, but a lot of businesses just took time off, time that normally would be popular, just because in a lot of cases it made more sense to close rather than to keep your doors open and have employees in there when you aren't making that business because there's no students, you know, just not economically viable in a lot of cases to stay open for a month or two. Mm -hmm. And I think that even though there was this trend to support small businesses during the pandemic, it was interesting that it was like local artisan craft clothing boutiques it was just weird like where was the support for freebirds and for the food places in IV? i don't know freebirds specifically always freebirds because i freaking love their quesadillas well freebirds had a line out the door a lot of the time because for a while their freebirds was the only restaurant open because everyone else closed so you've got one option we're basically only recording this episode as a love letter to freebirds quesadillas (laughs) And I mean, not to mention, too, the closure of dining halls. You know, we have thousands of students who, you know, in the past would eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or a combination of that at the dining halls, with Portola only opening in the spring and, you know, summer session, now DLG's open. But where are people putting that money where it would go to those meal plans, you know? Are they buying groceries at, let's say, the co-op, or are they going to these, you know, restaurants in IV? I think that's a super interesting conversation. Mm, Totally. Did you, do you guys have the answer to that? Like, do, do we know? 
Well, in a lot of cases, the people who were eating at dining halls, mainly freshmen, those are the people who didn't move to Ivy in the first place. We did see some freshmen who had never lived on campus, never been here, and did get leases in Ivy for the year, but a lot of those people did go home. Yeah, Alex is one of those people, so maybe you want to talk about that. Yeah, so I actually found the eating situation kind of difficult not having a meal plan. I lived in an apartment with five other girls my freshman year off campus on Camino del Sur. And I found it super hard to, you know, as like an 18-year-old girl to have to manage all of these responsibilities, you know, Mm. straight out of my parents' home. So I found that I was putting a lot of money towards restaurants in Ivy, but you know, we all get lazy. It's, you know, we're in the middle of a homework assignment. We don't really want to walk to Pardal. So it's kind of a toss up. So I'd say I split pretty even with groceries and walking to places to grab food. In the middle of the homework assignment, that's when you go get a free birds quesadilla. <laughs> it helps with the morale. <laughs> totally. And I think as more food places and restaurants and businesses and IV started opening back up, you know, the lifeblood of those were essential workers, which were a lot of the time students. And I guess I kind of want to gauge the room, you know, did anybody work through the pandemic? Like, what was anybody's experience? Or did you guys have friends that worked through the pandemic? And if so, like, maybe what were the big changes people observed in kind of that industry space? Well, I personally was not working at any business during the pandemic, but I've spoken through the Nexus and just through friends to a lot of people who have. And I think especially when it comes to students, that biggest thing is the uncertainty. You know, a lot of businesses, I will say, were very supportive of their workers, especially students. We spoke to Meg Wilson, who is a third year and working at Woodstocks. And, you know, something that she had said too was that, one of her roommates got COVID and you know that means you can't work and Mm -hmm. but they were very flexible with hours which is great but that's hard on the business owner side of things too where if one person who's an employee says oh I have COVID then you have to shut down and I know like with bootables they that happened to them twice over this past year Mm -hmm. so I think there's difficulty on the side of the essential workers but then also on the side of the managers and owners who are trying to navigate all these different people who may have potentially been exposed. Mm, Yeah, and I think it caused a lot of confrontation and and issues between roommates too because some people had to work and some people weren't taking the pandemic as seriously and preventing their roommates from going to work because of you know, exposure to COVID. So so those definitely, that brought up a, a lot of difficult conversations, I'd imagine. Yeah, and I worked for about four months during the pandemic in my hometown, and I will say it was very unpredictable and very stressful. So I was at Buffalo Wild Wings for about four months, and when I tell you on, a, let's say, a Monday night, they would have one bartender and one waiter, and all of a sudden, there would be this like huge crowd. The waiter couldn't see all the tables so then the hostess who weren't even trained had to help out it was crazy it was unpredictable but then you would take a saturday night for instance and it would be dead and you know like the labor costs were more than you know what the restaurant was actually bringing in so it was super unpredictable also super interesting when the managers would just send a text hey close down for two weeks like we had a positive test And then they would just shut down for two weeks and we'd come back like nothing happened. Mm. Super unpredictable, super weird, but I guess it's like the stark reality. 
Yeah, I mean, and but if you're dependent on that income to, to live, what do you do for those two weeks? Yeah, I just, I want a stat drop real quick because... Can I do my sound effect? <laughs> burr, 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 stat drop. Because I think this is super important to also look at the ethnic br- breakdown and kind of racial disparities in essential workers and what that meant for COVID rates too. And so some SV County stats, um, while Hispanic and Latino residents make up 48% of SV County's population, they accounted for 57% of COVID-19 cases, 67% of hospitalizations, and 50% of COVID-related deaths through December 31st, 2020. And a lot of that is correlated with this larger population working as essential workers. And so I think it's important to personalize and be aware of who really the brunt of this is impacting. Because I, I worked at an elementary school and that was scary and terrifying because I had little kids running around, but I didn't work in the service industry. And that's crazy, the stuff that you just talked about. Like, I think there's a difference there and we need to be conscious of that. But I think that essential workers, I think when we talk also about, I'm going on a tangent, (laughs) but I think when we talked about essential workers, especially towards the beginning of the pandemic, it was very clearly nurses and doctors and medical professionals in healthcare. And then we kind of got to this shift midway through when we heard service workers and people who are now being classified as essential workers and going back to work kind of being like no we're working too and we're also putting our lives on the line and it was a slower embrace of that of that culture of workers than than the medical professionals but i think it's important that we still remember that they are still as classified as essential workers absolutely i mean it in so many ways it's this privilege to even be able to work from home And I'm just really glad you put some context behind those stats because oftentimes I hear, oh, the black population or Latinx, Hispanic population have higher rates of COVID and then it stops there. And there's no sort of breaking down, okay, why is this? And, you know, I've uh, spoken to a lot of people about this and lots of UCSB professors who study this as well. And you know, it it does come down to looking at the population of essential workers and, you know, the risk that they have to take every day. And Isla Vista, while we do think of it as mainly UCSB students, that's not the case when you dive into these businesses and you look at the people who live in this community and work here, but aren't necessarily a part of UCSB. Totally. I can even speak from experience like working at, I worked at Isla Vista Elementary School, which is two blocks away from where I live on Trigo, in the heart of Isla Vista. And it's very easy to forget that it's not just college kids living here. And those, a lot of those people went to work through the pandemic, which is where some of the COVID cases popped up in at that elementary school. Those people are working every day. And while we as college kids can kind of, our families can afford to pay our rent and we can go and take classes, we aren't thinking about that a lot of the time. Yeah, something to think about too is, you know, UCSB as well, not just the Isla Vista essential worker population. So even while we weren't going to campus every day and walking around and interacting, there were still people that were doing that work every day. We have maintenance workers, we have landscape workers, all sorts of people where their jobs didn't stop at UCSB. And, you know, it's really important to keep in mind that population and 
remember that we have essential workers all around us who had some really difficult challenges and experiences over this past year and a half and are still experiencing that because of this Delta variant. Mm. Actually, the Unmasking I Love Vista team, which Catherine and Alex are part of, spoke with Daniel Dunietz, the owner and operator of Bootables, which is a local business here in IV, and uh, talked about some of these changes. And we wanted to play a clip of what he had to say. I'm asking, I'm getting it from the health department. I'm telling my staff, you can't serve someone. You got to ask people to put masks on. So, you know, we were doing our part, trying to help. And not everyone, you know, was as willing or as, um, you know, (laughs) I don't know what the word is, but we would for a while, especially in the beginning, I mean, it would be every day you get someone that would be cussing out our employees and, you know, just picking fights and and just refusing to just be a good person, I guess, in my opinion, you know. (laughs) I think the pandemic kind of brought some of these new challenges to businesses and to going to work. And one of those was just kind of like how attitudes have shifted. And a lot of that has to do with the masking up, which is somehow a controversial thing. I'm not going to go into it, but I don't think it should be. And this kind of overall disrespect and disregard for food service, service, and essential workers. I guess... Disgust. What did... Yeah. (laughs) Did you see a lot of this? Like, personally, I mean, I feel like I saw a ton of... Just not even in person, but, like, online, on social media, of just, like, fights breaking out over mask mandates and it all being kind of up to these essential workers who are a lot of the time teens or young adults having to manage like full adults having breakdowns and blowouts over putting on a piece of cloth over their mouth, which I think is ridiculous. I think it'd be difficult to find someone who's lived in Isla Vista this past year who doesn't have a story, at least one, about someone who was in 7-Eleven or in a restaurant around here and refused to wear a mask. and. Almost all the time I saw that, it was college students that were refusing this. So I I just think it's something I've seen over and over again here in IV. And seeing how owners, but not just owners, you know, oftentimes college students who are behind the desk at the grocery store having to ask these people to put on a mask. And sometimes people comply and sometimes they don't. Yeah, and I've talked to a bunch of my friends who have worked through the pandemic, and if they come home after a long day of work and they'll say, I'm not paid enough for this, or (laughs) I wasn't trained on this. These workers who are having to deal with these mask breakdowns, it's an emotional struggle that, you know, quite frankly, they are not paid enough to deal with. So I think that that's a really interesting challenge that has, you know, come about with the pandemic is, you know, young kids like us having to deal with, you know, this on a political scale as well. But I think something else that probably added some difficulty was just, it's not like there was one set of rules for this whole year and Mm. a half that the state put in place for everywhere. These things were controlled by the county and there was a tier system and capacities would change and mask requirements changed and things that different businesses had to do changed a lot. I mean, Ivy has a lot of restaurants, takeout stuff, but you know, we also have barbershops, for example, that have different capacity limits and mass requirements that have evolved a lot. And we at the Nexus have spoken to a lot of people about the difficulties that has, because not only are you having to adjust to your business, 
you're having to educate all the people that come in on these new and changing rules. And if someone wasn't aware of it, they might be frustrated by this if they didn't know that information before. So lots of confusion over this past year for sure. Totally. Currently, when I drive home to San Diego, there is no mask requirement inside. And it is perfectly normal to see people in a grocery store without masks. And then when I come back here, masks are required. So I think that it's difficult for people to manage the expectations of customers when it's constantly changing. And also these interactions that took place between people, essential workers who are working and customers varied and, and, and ranged, ran the gambit between blatant disrespect and overt racism, which I think is an issue that needs to be talked about. I mean, I think that on top of everything that was happening, especially specifically a kind of rise in anti-Asian crimes, vandalism, direct, like there was a lot of coughing directly on, you know, Asian identifying individuals, which was blatantly uncalled for. And a lot of the time on service workers, because they're the ones that are working it out in public and they're, you know, they're the ones having to enforce mass mandates a lot of the time and enforce these COVID rules. And I think it's just important to stress that there's kind of another layer on top of these. It's almost unbelievable at times how bad it's gotten. And there has been a sensationalism of these kind of things, which I don't know if is a good or bad thing in general, but I think it's important to remember that that's happening to real people. And I don't think it's stopped either recently. Right. So I just think whenever we can talk about it is important. Something I find really interesting about it all is just how we've seen people's different levels of safety over this past year where i kind of naively went into this when i moved back to ivy in the fall thinking okay everyone's going to be on the same page about masks the same page i'm on Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of different levels of safety where someone may think like oh i'm doing the right thing here but to someone else, oh, that's not right. And I think we saw a lot of that when it came to outdoor mask wearing, which is a little bit of a tangent, not as much about businesses, no, but yep. I just, <laughs> I found it really interesting. And, you know, this has happened to me personally, but also to every friend I've spoken to that they've had to have an uncomfortable conversation or two with friends or with roommates because, you know, you go into the year and you talk to everyone and you think, oh, everyone said they're being safe. But there's a million different definitions of what safe is and what safe isn't. Mm. And they're always changing. And I think the best way we can stay safe and also show our respect for essential workers is to get vaccinated. And Daniel Dunyetz says this. And so I think we should hear from him. I'm tired of it. I'm exhausted. I think that the people that are the people that are were coming in unmasked in the height of the pandemic are the same people that aren't getting vaccinated. Um, I completely understand the public health, you know, needs and why we need to extend empathy and extend compassion to everyone. But at a certain point, I think there's a responsibility for individual people to do their part and get vaccinated. And if at this point you haven't been vaccinated, I just, I, I am just it just blows my mind. I just can't understand it. And it's just insane. It just is starting to just really wear on me that we as the public and as businesses are continuing to have to make sacrifices for people that can't do the most basic and simple thing to get out of this pandemic. 
Yeah, I think the best way we can show our empathy and respect for people is to get vaccinated. Like, go get vaccinated, everyone. We, we're going to say this every time we record, but yeah, go get the shot. It and is FDA approved now. Great. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. The Pfizer Biotech COVID-19 vaccine is now FDA approved and hopefully will sway millions of people who are currently unvaccinated to feel safer about it and to feel that, you know, it is effective. But that being said, do you, what do you, I want to hear from you guys. What do you think we can do more to get people vaccinated now that we're FDA approved and there's still going to be a percentage of people who refuse? I mean, I think we kind of talked about uncomfortable conversations, but I really think if you can have a personal conversation with someone you know about getting vaccinated, that's super powerful. You know, I don't think, I don't think like your weird aunt who thinks that the vaccine is a hoax is going to listen to literally anybody else and take them seriously about getting vaccinated than her niece. You know, like I think if you can make that personal connection and sway as many minds as we can, that's great. I also think the more resources we can put into getting vaccinated, the more accessible we can make it, and the more, the easier it is for people to go get vaccinated, the more people are going to get vaccinated. And I don't know necessarily how much we can do to help that, but I think if we prioritize that and we let our local leaders know that that's what we prioritize, then hopefully we see some of that change and some of that get easier. Yeah, I think dunking on people just on social media for not getting vaccinated. That's something that's shown that's not going to change people's hearts and minds. It's Mm. really about that one-on-one, like you mentioned, Emily, you know, just saying, I as a person have reasons why I'm vaccinated and why I think you should be too. And I think that's true, especially when you're talking about, you know, immunocompromised people or people who interact or are around children who are under 12 and can't get vaccinated yet. Mm-hmm. But I think and hopefully until we can convince everyone to get vaccinated, we remain committed to wearing our masks as much as we can. And, you know, I think that's something that I think about a lot is like when you go into a restaurant, the people who are not wearing masks are not the people who are vaccinated. The first people to take their masks off were the people who were not embracing vaccination. So I don't think it was the right move to basically declare the pandemics over and, and take away masks. I think, I think we, we need them at least until we can have all these personal one-on-one conversations with people and get them the shot. And have to plug too for our listeners. I mean, for those who don't know, there's a recall election coming up very, very soon. And these conversations around mask mandates, vaccine mandates, what it's looking like for state workers and for essential workers. These are things that are being discussed right now. So go do some research and go vote. Mm-hmm. I just had I had something I wanted to point out too before go I forget for that you know UCSB has put in place this vaccine mandate for all students, staff, and faculty, as well as wearing masks indoors. But I don't think that's a reason to let your guard down by any means because UCSB is not Isla Vista and vice versa as much as we try to equate that sometimes. So there are still a lot of people in Isla Vista who either haven't been vaccinated or you know aren't under these same mask requirements that are as strict as UCSB's. So you know just keep it up when you're in IV versus when you're on campus when it comes to mask wearing. I think that's always wise. Totally, and just to kind of bring it back around to that business focus, you know, after living through this pandemic and working on this project for you guys, how are you seeing maybe your own habits or habits in general as a consumer kind of change? You know, like what's what's shifted for you guys or what might what are you thinking about shifting in the future? 
Well, I think something I recognized before but really have a much better understanding of is just the fragility that, you know, these businesses, they took a huge hit and a lot of them either folded or were close to folding and were really relying on that community support. And when you talk to people, you know, like at the co-op, for example, this is a UCSB, I love this kind of institution and those places they aren't bulletproof they need to be protected so you know i love this is so special because we have such a community drive when it comes to our businesses and a lot of places don't have that so you know support those places but then also just recognize that you know even still they're feeling the effects of covid that doesn't go away when the pandemic's over which it's not by the way yeah <laughs> Catherine, you literally read our minds We wanted to talk a bit about the gap between these uh, local businesses like we've been talking about and also businesses like Amazon. We love to talk about Amazon. So Daniel estimates that Bootable's income dropped about 80% during the pandemic. And in comparison, Jeff Bezos's income increased by $86 billion between April and January of 2021. I I think that alone is insane. We kind of have this very clear dichotomy between like pointing to who is getting impacted by this pandemic. And it is not Jeff Bezos, surprise, surprise. So I guess through your research or personal experience, I don't know that this question fits here, but thoughts, feelings? Yeah, I think that during the pandemic and stay-at-home orders specifically, people are justifying getting these Amazon packages delivered to their house, right? Totally. Right, if they're going to stay at home, they're going to get a knock on their door and, you know, anything at their beck and call is there. That being said, you know, is that right? Is that ethical? No, because they're supporting, you know, this huge, you know, like almost monopoly of everything. (laughs) Brick and mortars is going down, especially in these family-owned businesses, in these local shops, and they're really feeling the heat. So I think that a lesson to be learned from this is treat your local businesses with compassion. These workers are feeling the revenue loss. They're feeling, you know, the stress management of trying to tell people to get their mask on, you know, and they're also wearing masks for eight-hour shifts, you know. Mm. So, you know, just treat your workers with compassion. Think about your choices before you choose Amazon over a local business. It's a little cliche now to say, but I, I think it speaks volumes of truth, so. Yeah, just being deliberate with your dollars mean you know can make a really big impact and these businesses that we spoke to for this project you know they did receive these loans from the government these things to get them by these grants but that doesn't go far enough and there's so much loss still that they have to recoup but also when you know you think about amazon or these large businesses versus small business something you have to keep in mind as a consumer also is the environmental side of things which i've been very cognizant of and i think about a lot which is why i try not to shop at amazon i won't say i've eliminated it a hundred percent because you know we have the amazon locker here in iv and sometimes you just need something you can't get in person here but you know that is something to keep in mind is that not just these economic benefits to the small business but also you know, think about the environment because those effects haven't gone away because there's a pandemic. Yeah, and I think we would be amiss to have this conversation without talking a little bit about the current situation with unemployment checks and the 
gap between businesses need for workers and the size of the workforce currently and we wanted to do another stat drop the unemployment rate reached 14.8 percent in april 2020 which is the highest it's been since they started documenting unemployment rates in 1948 and also more stats labor the labor force participation rate declined to 60.2 percent in april 2020 i think that just it serves to show that minimum wage is not enough. You know, like if these minimum wage workers would rather get unemployment checks that are more than they would be making paycheck to paycheck, something is wrong with that system. Something is wrong with the way that minimum wage is and clearly it's not it's not enough for people to live on. Yeah, and just to call out, these numbers are from a study done by the Congressional Research Service, which was focusing on the unemployment rates during COVID-19. I guess looking forward, and this is a huge question, and I don't expect us to have any answers that are correct, (laughs) but I guess thoughts and opinions coming out of COVID, which who knows when that's going to be, but coming into a space where more things are reopening and the workforce is kind of getting larger, how do you think this is going to affect the workforce or, you know, the workspace in general? Right. And just a note that we are recording this pre-September 4th, which is the date that the COVID unemployment basically benefits end. So we're probably expecting a huge influx of workers into uh, the workforce as a result of that. Anyway, continue. Big question. Sorry, Big I know. <laughs> That's definitely, I don't know. That's a that's a great question. And I, like you said, I don't know if any of us will have the right answer. I really hope that we can get back to work and get people financially stable again because i know that the pandemic has hit so many families hard made the the wealth disparity gap even larger like we were talking about previously getting jeff bezos to an even higher stature he went to space everyone (laughs) he should not have gone well and i think that wealth disparity you know that's not just between like these ceos and workers i also it would be remiss not to point out the growing disparity that we've seen and the difficulties for women over this past year and how those unemployment numbers you know is being let go in cases because of the pandemic but it's also oh i'm a mother who has three kids who are elementary school aged and you can't leave them home alone all day when school's online and that is still a huge issue even as schools go back in person and i think that's affecting the workforce not just in California, but across the country. I mean, we could have a whole full conversation about mothers during the pandemic because they were freaking superheroes. And kind of getting back to this unemployment rate discussion, I think that the main thing in my head is we need to increase the minimum wage because I think that it's really telling when people would rather collect unemployment than, than work because they're making more that way. And hopefully our leaders are getting the message that there needs to be a change. Yeah, I think, if anything, it'll be interesting to see what we as a community and our leaders prioritize coming out of COVID. I feel like, if anything, it's done a great, marvelous job at pointing to where we as a society are weakest and where we need to do better and what we need to push to do better on. Yeah, COVID really likes to stir the pot. It really brought all the junk up. Yeah, I think just moving forward, it'll it'll be super important to push for the things we want to change because clearly, I think in doing this series and on all of these different segments, 
it's so clear that there are so many issues that we all have strong opinions on and that we want to see done differently. And so it'll be interesting to see us kind of taking those next steps going forward. And that's really what made us want to do Unmasking Ala Vista because when we first started talking about this back in the spring, it was as a retrospective of COVID. But then as we evolved on these topics and had these conversations and interviews, we realized like it's part retrospective, but it's also part that we are seeing large ramifications from this pandemic and the micro level that's in Isla Vista, but really across the country. And I think there's a lot, like you say, that's being brought up that we fully haven't dealt with. And, you know, we're definitely seeing that at the state level as well. Yeah, and I think as a final thought, you know, we're seeing the UC system-wide tuition increase coming in the next couple years. We're seeing this housing crisis leaving hundreds of students without housing for this upcoming school year. You know, they're faced with with the choice of either spending way beyond their budget in IV. You know, I've even seen Facebook posts saying, should I convert this trailer into a tiny home? You know, people are people are going to these depths of what do I do? So that being said, I think we need to start locally with helping students in our community out. So let's start here and let's start now and let's tell our local leaders what we need to change. Well, fuck. Thank you so much, guys, for sitting down and having this conversation with us. It's phenomenal. We are so excited for the last and final episode of this series, focusing on unmasking Isla Vista. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us for episode two of our Unmasking Isla Vista collaboration. We had a wonderful time speaking with everybody, and special thanks to Atmika, Ashley, Catherine, and Alex for this episode. Thanks to our producers, Tony Schindler-Ruberg and Sid Hopps. Stay hot, everyone. And get vaccinated.